Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When I'm not playing solitaire, I take a book down from the shelf. And what with programs on the air, I keep pretty much to myself. Miss the Saturday dance Heard they crowded the floor Couldn't bear it without you Don't get around much anymore Today we're talking about loneliness. I went back and visited with Emily Dickinson. She's a very famous poem about loneliness. I read it about ten times today, the way one tends to do. Uh, hearing it a little bit differently every time. Towards the end of the 16 lines, she says, she's talking about loneliness. She says, the horror, not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. So, Dickinson, not surprisingly, I think is saying, you know, loneliness can do any number of things, seal you off or be one of the things that kind of illuminates you, your interior or both. Um, you know, so the loneliness has been around for a long time and, and talking about loneliness has been around for a long time. But somewhere around 1950 in America, post-World War II, uh, this conversation begins uh, and, and every 20 or 25 years, this, there's a kind of gut check book. In 50, it was David Reisman's The Lonely Crowd. In 1970, uh, it was Philip Slater's The Pursuit of Loneliness. About 25, later, 25 years later, uh, Douglas Putnam writes the essay that becomes the book Bowling Alone. And, and, and a lot of them go at the same question, which is, are the things that we come to value in post-war America things which distance, ourse- distance us from one another? I mean, in other words, if the goal is to get out of the city, into the suburbs, onto a one-acre or two-acre lot with three televisions yeah, and, and <laughs> never leave, um, are we in fact putting ourselves at risk of losing touch with one another? And all of those things were written and talked about before the internet became what it is. Well, fortunately, we have a public servant who is thinking a lot about this uh, these uh, days. Uh, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy uh, is the Democratic, one of the two Democratic U.S. senators who represents Connecticut. He's no stranger to most of you, I think. Uh, he's joining us now to talk about something, I guess it's sort of been for the better part part of a year, at least, that you've been thinking out loud and writing about this question. True, Senator? Yeah, it is true. I, I think it's been part of a you know broader uh, exploration for me of what is eating at America. I, I think as I get further along in my public service, I'm not interested only in just ad- adjusting the dials of public policy, but trying to understand what is actually making people unhappy. Because I guess I think that my job in the end is supposed to be uh, pursuing policies that end up making people more satisfied with their lives. And I have come to the conclusion that there's a lot of new and unique things that are 
hurting Americans and making them feel unhappy today. And I think one of the clearest phenomenons and one of the ones that is most easily to explain and talk about, in part because, as you referenced, we've talked about it before, is this phenomenon of isolation and loneliness and aloneness. Uh, and so, yes, I've been talking about it more and thinking more about what role public policy and politicians can play in giving people who want to be less alone that opportunity. Right. And I think, you know, as we're increasingly starting to talk about loneliness as potentially a public health issue, that's part of what you're doing. Uh, Dr. Vivek, Vivek uh, Murthy, who was twice now the Surgeon General of the United States, including right now, is also a big thought leader on this. But I think it's hard to disentangle loneliness from social anxiety, depression, shame, isolation, rejection. And, and there's some real chicken and egg questions, right? Right? I mean, are do we become less functional because we're lonely? Do we wind up being lonely because we're dysfunctional and, and in some way and not suited for, for you know, large amounts of human contact? I mean, do you feel as though we have a handle on those kinds of questions or is it kind of a gorgeous? Not. I don't think we have a, a handle on it. And of course, you know, as with any emotion or condition, you know, what it means to one person is completely different from what it means to someone else. But we also do have a handful of, of data that tells us that people are just living differently today and living in ways that you would expect to lead to higher levels of loneliness. One obvious phenomenon today is more people, in particular, more young people spending more time on their phones, right, on technology, less time with people in person. Today, um, half of Americans report having three or fewer closer friends. Um, that's double the number that reported having three or few close friends in 1990. So there is information out there that tells us that there is just more aloneness happening, that people are spending more time by themselves. And that doesn't seem to be coincidental to the bad outcomes that are also increasing. You have more people dependent on drugs that are designed to withdraw you from your emotions. You have more people that are having suicidal ideations. So when you put all that together, it suggests that there is something uh, particularly uh, important happening, and it must be connected to the ways in which people are withdrawing from friends and family and social interaction. Yeah, and I think the internet uh, can be very good at connecting people to uh, other people who are like them, which is really, particularly Facebook is good at it. So if you have a very rare disease, you can find, you know, 100 other people who have the very rare disease, and you can make a group, and you can support one another and exchange information, and that's terrific. But the other thing that the internet can do, I think, is connect socially isolated people around less desirable ideas and goals. You can find the other people who want to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And it does seem as though that is somehow connected to loneliness. If you're living in relative isolation, you might be excited by conspiracy theories, by pseudoscience, by ideas that run counter to what maybe the, the bulk of people around you are thinking. So I think that's true, but I, I think it is also true that we are learning that that virtual connection, even when it's surrounding a positive mutual interest, is oftentimes not as fulfilling or rewarding. It doesn't stimulate 
the kind of activity in your brain that in-person connection does. And so, well, it's true, you actually have more opportunity to connect with people or find passions that you care about online. When that happens through a computer screen or through a phone, I just don't know that it ends up being as as, as fulfilling. But to your point, yes, I, I just think that there's a lot of, we've all been lonely. And and when you're lonely, there's a lot of emotions that come over you. Probably the first is sadness, but one of them is anger, right? One of the things that you often feel when you're lonely is angry and you want to know why you're angry and you're more willing to listen to arguments about, you know, the reasons why your life isn't the way that you had hoped. And those scapegoats be, get sort of dialed up very easily for you by sort of demagogues and political fringe movements. And so, yes, I think there's a correlation between you know, more fringy political movements in this country, more violent threats to democracy, and more people, um, in particular men, um, who I think are going through a whole set of other very radical transitions at the same time, um, who are feeling pretty alone. Yeah, in particular men, and maybe a subset of those lonely men, are so-called incels. In 2018, a guy drives a van in Toronto into a crowd, killing 10 people. Minutes before that, he posts on Facebook, the incel rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the supreme gentleman, Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger was another self-described incel who committed the Isla Vista, uh, California attack, and, which killed uh, six people in 2014, which is not to suggest in any way, neither one of us would do that, that lonely people are dangerous. Uh, on the other hand, uh, loneliness kind of embraced at that level. I mean, incels, for people who don't recognize the term, are men who say basically that they cannot get women. They can't have any kind of relationship uh, with women. And it's a little bit more developed than that is almost an ideology. But it, it's one of the more extreme expressions of the kind of isolation and alienation you seem to be talking about. Yeah, and I'm always you know, very careful, and I and I hear you being exercising that same caution when trying to connect, you know, either the emotion of loneliness or the phenomenon of mental illness with violence. Uh, because, well, I think there's more loneliness in America than Europe. There's not 20 times more loneliness, but there's 20 times more gun violence here. So our violence problem is is more so connected to how easily we allow those people who are going through things to get their hands on dangerous weapons. But yes, if you look at the profile of these mass shooters, you just can't help but see these similarities. It's 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 men, young men who are alone, who have withdrawn from society and who have formed a set of grievances um, about uh, why that happened to them. And I bet you, if you surveyed the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, you would find a whole bunch of lonely people who, you know, didn't take out their anger through isolated acts of mass violence, but instead joined together with a cult of individuals that was fed to them um, a different set of political grievances, and they ended up trying to destroy our democracy in the process. So, you know, obviously we've already kind of referenced technology. You heard me reference uh, the book Bowling Alone, which talks about a lot of these kind of linchpin, very small linchpin local organizations that just don't seem to have members anymore. Uh, you're not joining the Lions Club or the B'nai B'rith or the Knights of Columbus or, or whatever. Um, and... 
then maybe kind of a hyper-programmed work life. You might want to say a little bit about this. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I have something called Slack in my job, which turns out to be the opposite of what the name <laughs> suggests. It's actually a way for your job to cut you less slack. But it, it sort of means that I'm tethered and potentially busy at all times. And I, I wonder about the way in which that interferes with social contact. No, I think that's right. I mean, you, you have to work today 70 hours um, in order to sort of achieve the same quality of life for your family relative to earnings as you did 40 years ago. And so there's a lot of reasons why people aren't joining Lions Clubs and VFWs and churches. Uh, I think much of that is, you know, an erosion of faith in institutions. But a lot of it is that people just have less free time and less leisure time. Um, people are having to work a lot harder. And even when they're not officially at work, they still feel attached to work, as you mentioned, through um, all these uh, technologies. Uh, and so, you know, when I sort of survey the set of things we need to do to give people the chance to be less alone, it's a long list. I think you've got to purposefully make some of those organizations and institutions more healthy. I think you have to give people more access to free time. And then I think you just got to get really serious about attacking this addiction to screens that happens at a very young age. And so I've been you know, more serious about combating social media addiction for teenagers in the last four or five months as an outgrowth of my work on loneliness, because I just think that um, if you don't nip that in the bud, it becomes a lifelong phenomenon, just staring at your screen when you have a free moment instead of calling up a friend and seeing if they want to go out and have a beer or go for a walk. You know, you've also been collaborating with less politically oriented thinkers, uh, including a, a philosopher, and you've started to use terms like in, in some of the pieces you've co-authored, like spiritual renaissance. Uh, and, and I... I I don't think anybody would question the fact that spiritually uh, or spirituality construed broadly is is absent in a lot of lives these days. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily talking strictly about church and synagogue attendance. I think we're talking about something deeper and richer uh, and, and less palpable even. But maybe you could say a little bit about what you as a U.S. senator are doing getting involved in that conversation. So I get to this through a bunch of means, but I'll give you one. Um, you know, we passed a lot of really important legislation in the last three years, stuff that we've been waiting to do for decades. You know, the first gun bill in 30 years, a major infrastructure investment, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, uh, renewable energy investment. Um, and I'm super proud of all of that. But then sort of when you survey the public, um, they don't feel much better about the direction of America. They don't feel much better about the president of the United States. And I worry that there is you know, a disconnect between the policies that we think are going to make people feel better about themselves and their society and what people actually want. So I have been, you know, using this time to try to you know, just step back and partner with some apolitical people, philosophers, psychologists, um, people who spend their time trying to figure out what is the good life, right? First principles questions, right? What, what gives us meaning and purpose? I think it's an odd thing at some level for a politician to be spending time on. But I, I'm more convinced that if as political leaders, we don't know what people think brings them meaning and fulfillment, then we're not going to be working on the right set of policies. So, yeah, I'm going to spend a bunch of this year, next year doing those partnerships, trying to explore what's sort of sort of eating in America today that makes so many people anxious and uh, feeling unspooled, and then 
you know, just do a better job of trying to pick the policies I work on um, and making sure they're connected to those things that people are feeling and the things that people want in order to feel better. Yeah, I think, you know, I was going to church pretty regularly a few years ago, and then I stopped for complicated reasons, but uh, it wasn't even necessarily that the tenets uh, of that particular church, that the theology was exactly what I believed. When people asked me what I was doing there or why I was going there, I said, you know, it really is— you don't otherwise pause during the week to think about what it means to be a human being. You know, what are we doing here? Uh, what's the whole point? Uh, and church is as good a place to do that as any, uh, and to do it with other people seemed part of the whole process. I mean, I could sit there in my house and meditate, but it's somehow not the same, right? And it's also, you know, one of the few places left that is built around the value of selflessness. Now, some churches are more selfless than others, but, you know, it is a place where you go to really understand the value of living for others and living for bigger purposes besides yourself. And, you know, somewhere in my childhood around the 1980s, I think this country took a sort of turn for the worse in which we became, you know, hyper individualistic, focused just on ourselves uh, and less concerned about the health of our communities. And I don't think that's coincidental to you know, people walking away from church. So, you know, I've sort of come back to church in the last couple of years um, in in part because I'm sort of looking to be surrounded by a conversation about selflessness, about something other than me. Um, and I've really benefited from that. Uh, like you, I'm not sure exactly what I believe about the afterlife or about the doctrine of my church, but I love the fact that I'm getting a chance to think about my community and the congregation. And I, you know, I'm kind of going to be unapologetic about recommending that other people reconnect in the way that I have. It's worked for me. So 27 to 2018, uh, the United Kingdom does kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, Britain in particular um, does this thing called the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness. Uh, they take one of their existing ministerial posts. People started calling it the Minister of Loneliness. That wasn't actually the name, but they, they took one of their existing ministerial posts and assigned the topic of loneliness to that minister. Uh, a few years later, 2021, Japan does essentially the same thing. The prime minister designates a cabinet post to alleviate social isolation. So there's a precedent for government really looking hard at this and not just another blue chip, blue ribbon commission study. What what can government ultimately do about something like loneliness? So listen, I actually, I'm not a big fan of these commissions and and studies, but I actually think it's not a bad place to start, in part because other countries have had success. Uh, and so I'm actually working on legislation right now that would set up a structure within the federal government to um, you know, study this question of social connection and to you know, sort of prepare a set of recommendations about what government can do uh, can do to, to help. But I don't know that we need to search too far um, you know, I've already previewed some of the list. You know, I do think getting serious about breaking kids' addictions to screens will help with loneliness. I do think that having a purposeful policy of supporting local institutions like social clubs or youth sports leagues or churches um, will have a positive impact. And I think a policy around reducing the number of hours that people have to work a week in order to live life, um, allowing people to work a 40-hour work week and have it pay enough so that you can spend your evenings and weekends in leisure activities 
is part of what helps combat loneliness. So that's the beginning of a strategy, but I'm actually excited to sort of put this legislation in front of my colleagues and um, you know, ask the United States engage in a little bit more purposeful effort in studying loneliness, tracking it like Britain and Japan have. You know, I'm supposed to be wrapping this up right here, but I'll just say one more thing, which is, um, you know, in, in a way, one could argue <laughs> that the U.S. Senate has gotten more lonely in the sense that uh, I remember reading Al Franken's book, uh, Giant of the Senate, and he talks about how there were, I think, three or four couples, married couples, one of one person in each couple was a senator, but they were from the two parties, kind of evenly mixed, and they would just go out to dinner. You know, they would go out to dinner on a regular basis and 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 just talk about stuff other than what's going on in the Senate, presumably, um, and, and that that kind of thing seemed to be dying out. So I guess maybe my last question to you is, is, is doesn't this have to don't you have to get Mitch McConnell interested in loneliness in order for this to be kind of significant? Yeah, it may be too late for Mitch to take on new projects. Uh, but uh, no, I listen, I there's a book that I love um, called The Wise Men, and it's a sort of book painting a picture of Washington right after World War II. It's the story of the development of NATO and the post-World War II international institutions. But what I was struck by in reading that book is how long the lunches were and how many dinners people had. Like everything just moved more slowly. And one of the consequences of modernity is that everything moves so quickly. You are forced to move from task to, to task so rapidly that you have very little time to just stop and enjoy friends, um, enjoy time with family. Uh, and so, yeah, I've definitely, you know, as I mentioned, tried to take very personal steps like rejoining uh, church communities to, you know, force myself back into connection. But I don't have a critique of this job that it's super lonely. I am constantly <laughs> around people. Um, and that's in part what I love about the job. Uh, I get to choose a life with lots of people. And I want to make sure that other people, if they choose that kind of life, uh, have it uh, as easily available. Right. And maybe a lunch with Ted Cruz would just seem long. Uh, Chris Murphy, uh, U.S. Uh, Democratic Senator. I'm, first of all, I'm glad you're tackling all this. I, I mean, I really do think it's very, very worthy and worth looking at. So thank you for doing this and congratulations on your new role as a Red Sox reliever. Uh, you pitched pretty well on Sunday. Uh, and thanks for being with me today. All right. Go Chris Murphy. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. We'll take a little break here and then we'll talk about loneliness looks in brains of people who are lonely. Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your memory stray to a bright summer day? When I kissed you and called you. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
you're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So as I promised, we are going to talk right now about what happens in the brains of people. We may not use lonely people because that's not a terribly scientific term. Uh, We'll talk about what the right terms are with our guest, uh, Alyssa Beck, an assistant professor of psychology at USC uh, Dornsife, where she is doing a lot of research uh, into these kinds of questions, using brain scans uh, to see how people with different kind of sets of social networks and connections process the same material. So, uh, Elizabeth, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, one of the things that I love to come that came out of your study or one of the way one of the terms of art you chose was the so-called Anna Karenina effect. But maybe b- before we get to to Anna Karenina, we should begin by saying you tried to look at People. These are, uh, I think, almost entirely young people who are college students or something like that. Uh, and and explain how you sort of group them. Uh, we might call it lonely versus non-lonely, but you need something a little bit more precise sounding than that. So what did you come up with? Yeah. So, um, yes. So we actually use the term loneliness. Um, so loneliness is um, psychologically um, validated construct, actually. And Loneliness is distinct from social isolation um, in that, of course, they're related, but loneliness is this like subjective feeling of a gap between um, where how you want to feel socially connected and how you perceive um, the degree to which you are actually social, socially connected. So, of course, it's related to the number of social ties that we have or the number of social uh, number of friends that we have in that people with more friends tend to be less lonely. But there are still a lot of people that still feel this gap in how they want to feel um, socially. They feel lack of social fulfillment, even when they're they're surrounded by um, a lot of friends. So we did actually define it um, as loneliness. And because loneliness is a subjective feeling, um, we measure it using a validated scale of loneliness that's self-reported by the participants. Right. And and that's that all goes back to the Emily Dickinson poem I, I read at the beginning of this. It is, mm-hmm. in many respects, when we turn and face our loneliness that we begin to think that we're lonely. And as you suggest, there are a lot of people who could have a powerful looking network of social connections, but still feel lonely. Uh, there's probably the opposite is true to a certain degree as well. So when you when you group people that way and then did brain imaging uh, with them, say a little bit about how that went. Yeah, so what we did was we were kind of interested in uh, trying to understand or uncover what's going on in the brain um, that may explain this phenomenon that a lot of people 
that are lonely um, feel, which is not feeling understood or not feeling like other people um, understand them. And so um, in our recent study, we um, had people in the MRI scanner, which allowed us to obtain brain activity. Um, and we had them watch a bunch of different video clips. And these are short clips that you might find on YouTube. And they range quite a bit in topics. So we had things like um, scenes from a movie, comedy scenes, um, even a sports game. And this was um, so that we can try to get brain activity um, as participants are watching these videos that are reminiscent of what they what they encounter in everyday life. So different scenes. Um, and what we found was that the lonely individuals um, compared to their peers were very dissimilar from the group's um, average brain activity and, and how other people's brains responded to these different scenes. And as you alluded to earlier, um, we also found this Anna Karenina effect in that lonely individuals' brain responses were all different from the group's average ways in their own idiosyncratic way. Right, so that's the famous uh, "all ha happy families are alike, but every unhappy every unhappy family is unhappy uh, in a different way." This is uh, borne out in in these individuals, and so what you're saying, if I understand it, and what the study seems to say is, in the lonely individuals processing some of this material, their brain activity is not only uh, different from the average, but very different from one another's, from other the, the, the brain activity of any given other lonely person. And and maybe ultimately, if you looked at all of those lonely people, are they further away from each other than they are from the average, on average? Yeah, that's precisely um, what we found, right? They're dissimilar um, from one another, even more so than to non-lonely people. So we, you know, like to mimic the Anna Karenina quote, we say that we found that non-lonely individuals are all alike in their neural responding, but that every lonely individual seemed to process the world in their own um, way, right? That's represented by these idiosyncratic neural responses. So one of the uh, questions that comes up right away, for me anyway, is kind of a, another chicken-egg question. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, let's say that you uh, are a lonely person for whatever reason. Uh, you feel lonely a lot of the time. Uh, these are pretty young people, so they haven't really had a time to build up kind of a complex and hardened set of responses. But they've lived enough of life so that one kind of wonders, well, did your brain activity become different because you were the kind of person who wasn't having satisfying social experiences, or was that wiring there coming right out of the womb? I don't know if there's any way to know that yet, but it's got to be a pretty interesting question. Yeah, definitely. I think the cause and direction of these effects are um, very, very interesting. Um, unfortunately, we would have had a little bit of a better idea on the cause and direction. Um, this was supposed to be a longitudinal um, study, but then um, COVID hit right in the middle, so we couldn't scan um, or get brain activity of participants at um, the second time point, which would have been mid-2020. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think we can speculate a little bit. I think that um, it's likely bi-directional in effect, right? So the more that you're feeling like you don't connect with people, the less the more um, lonelier your brain is probably going to be because we know that people, um, when they're surrounded by other people, their brain responses tend to become aligned with those people that they're surrounded by. Right. And 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 that that Anna Karenna effect also means that they're not going to be able to make common cause with one another very easily. They, they would see the same thing and they have very different reactions. 
Right, that's right. Yeah, I don't think the solution is to get all the lonely people in the room and connect on their loneliness. No, uh, Eleanor Rigby, notwithstanding. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's so many other interesting things to come out of this. But I, one thing that I wanted to ask a little bit about is whether the materials they watched. Uh, made a difference. In other words, uh, as I tried to process the study, it seemed as though maybe if they were watching something a little bit more abstract, a little bit more ambiguous, therefore open to multiple interpretations, uh, that some of these wide disparities would be more noticeable than, I don't know, if we all look at uh, a news report of a school shooting, I think we're all going to be kind of sad and it's just there's not too much more to think about it uh, than that. But me, tell us what you found. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct um, in your intuition there. So we found that um, just basically across all the videos, on average, we found this effect that lonely that's unaccredited effect. But where we found the greatest effects were in these video clips that had um, very ambigu ambiguous scenes where it can be interpreted in multiple ways. There are social scenes where. Um, or especially we actually found that these effects are the most pronounced when there were plot twists in the narrative, right? When something unexpected happens and it's open to multiple interpretations that we did find this effect. So it's hard to start with pure research and then go to kind of societal interventions or things like that. But it's also kind of irresistible. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you now see something that seems pretty wired in. Um, on the other hand, you don't necessarily want this problem to become any worse. The, you don't want people to become any more alienated than they already are. So as you think about it, I mean, there are other studies you no doubt want to do. And some of them, I assume, are what happens if you take two very different people and try to have them experience, say, something together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we've been thinking about. And I think that I hesitate to say that the, just because we found these effects in the brain that it's not changeable, right? That they're doomed to think idiosyncratically um, the rest of their lives. Um, I don't think that's what our study finds. Um, and I think prior work um, from other teams have shown that there are um, things that we can do to try to align brain activity. And we care about aligning brain activity or synchronization of brain activity across different people because it represents um, at the core this shared understanding that and the shared experience um, that two people have, um, which is what the brain, um, the synchronized brain activity is reflecting. So um, my team has been um, thinking a lot about sort of trying to test out different intervention intervention strategies from this empirical work to try to promote shared understanding between individuals. And um, so one thought that we have was to have individuals engage in a novel or ambiguous task um, where they don't have such where such strong like preconceived notions and do something like go to an art exhibit and um, and look at um, art and come to a consensus of understanding. Other teams have shown that coming to a consensus about something ambiguous actually promotes um, shared understanding between individuals that's reflected in synchronized brain activity. So we've been thinking a lot about um, doing such interventions um, with the hope that then we can kind of scale this up to with an empirically based intervention to try to um, alleviate loneliness. You know, um, I know that one of the things that you did in, in questionnaires was to try to find out who 
um, who gets identified as a friend by other people. Uh, in other words, you, know, you ask a person who their friends are, uh, and then you can start to cross-reference those things, and certain people are identified as friends by a lot of people. But some of those people also self-identify as lonely. I would imagine that's an interesting question, right? If a, if a lot of people think that Joe is our friend and Joe feels incredibly lonely, what does that mean? Mm, yeah, so I've been really, really fascinated by this intersection of people who will have a lot of friends um, but still feel highly lonely. And what we've been finding is that um, preliminary data is suggesting that the depth or the closeness that you feel with other people is um, a lot more important than the number of friends that you have, which may seem a little bit intuitive, but we're actually seeing that having a lot of friends that you on average don't feel that close to, is actually worse than having fewer number of friends that you similarly don't feel close to. So it seems to suggest that um, investing in potentially fewer friendships where you really connect and understand one another is actually more important than just going out and making a bunch of new friends. You know, another thing that you found out runs, I think, counter to a lot of people's intuitions, if I understand the finding correctly, which is that people who identify as lonely people are actually pretty good at deriving guesses about other people's states of mind, for example, just by looking at uh, a disembodied set of eyes, just the expression in somebody's eyes. You would think that a, someone who didn't feel successful socially and maybe felt a little bit alone and isolated wouldn't be very good at reading other people. That doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, so this is some like recent pilot data coming from my lab that hasn't been published yet. But yeah, we are starting to, we are finding that um, these lonely individuals are actually exceptionally really good at um, what we call a mentalizing task, which is um, taking the perspective or guessing the emotions of other people um, that are pretty nuanced. Um, it's actually a pretty tough task to do. And so we're trying to understand um, why this might be the case if they're feeling socially isolated. So it doesn't seem to be the case that lonely individuals are just, you know, um, not as socially um, adept, for instance, but it seems to suggest that being hypersensitive potentially to what what other people are thinking and feeling exactly at the moment um, might be contributing to the sense of disconnection. And um, sometimes, I guess, in this aspect, ignorance might be bliss. <laughs> All right. <laughs> then I'm blissful. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you uh, as well. We're going to take a break here. Alyssa Beck is an assistant professor of psychology at USC Dornsife. Uh, we are going to take a break. We will come back. We will talk about this whole question of friends and whether or not you can get more of them. Strolling down the All right. One reason I'm not that lonely is that Cat Pastor uh, is sitting here as the technical producer. Of course, she's on the other side of a pane of very strong glass. Uh, and uh, the <laughs> the producer of this episode is McCusker. Just one word, uh, trademarked a new branding name. She's not around right now. She's not doing anything about my loneliness. Um, but it's time to also talk about that idea of friends. Um, that would be the good name for a TV series, actually. 
friends. Uh, joining us right now to talk about friends and whether or not uh, there's a way to get more of them uh, is Kat Velos, uh, a speaker and connection coach. She's also, also the author of the book, We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships. So first of all, Kat Velos, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So in a way, your first object of study was you, um, in the sense (laughs) that you uh, were somebody who maybe felt a little bit lonely. You had a couple of things going against you, as I understand it. As a kid, you moved around a lot. That's, uh, it makes it hard to, my my friend Mr. Karp always says, you only got, you don't get a new chance to make old friends. So your your chance to make old friends is probably a a little bit diminished by by hypermobility. And then you moved to the Bay Area, which turns out to be geographic a place where it's hard to make friends. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it was interesting. I moved to the Bay Area about eight years ago, and it's a wonderful place to live. It's full of very smart and interesting people. I was going to tons of meetups and tons of events, but unfortunately, it's also a place with a really high amount of transiency. So there's people moving in and moving out. As you mentioned, hypermobility, which is one of the sections in my book, uh, it's a place where people come and go a lot. There was one year I went to more goodbye parties than birthday parties. And so it was easy to make friends. It was harder to like keep them around. <laughs> well, the other thing is uh, um, about friends, uh, and not specific to you anymore, but about friends is we we can lose friends too. I mean, as, as I say, Mr. Carp says you don't get a new chance to make old friends, but if you don't maintain those friendships, any kind of friendship, no matter when you started it, you are at risk for losing that. What do we know about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's usually what I, so when I started studying friendship and working on this book, one of the things I discovered is that there's really two different challenges, as you noted. There's the making of the friends, and then there's the maintaining friends. And often what happens in adulthood is that we we lose one to two friendships a year. This comes from research from Dr. Robin Dunbar, the founder of Dunbar's Number. And when we lose those one to two friendships a year, it's typically not because of a falling out or a friendship really ending in a dramatic fashion. They really just fade away through lack of maintenance, lack of care and attention. Um, or you may care, but you just may not feel like you have the time attention to focus on those friendships and keep them going, or it might feel like your friends are constantly moving away, as I mentioned. Um, So that difficulty with maintaining them, it's like if there's this already existing level of attrition, we actually need to either focus more on keeping those connections strong or having our mind ready. No, like we're going to need to be maintaining friends to kind of like keep filling up the bucket in a way if there's kind of a small hole in the bottom of the bucket. (laughs) Just naturally for everyone. (laughs) I I feel moved to add that. So Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar um, is a theorist who says that the human mind or the human soul is capable of maintaining about 150 uh, significant relationships. We've been working on a Dunbar's number show for 18 months now. Mm. We we haven't managed to do it yet. But now now that I know about you, maybe you're going to be on that show too. Uh, But yeah, let's talk about the things that seem to get in the way, particular, particularly of making new friends. But these are also can be uh, impediments to keeping friends. Uh, we talked about hypermobility a little bit. We could say a little bit more about it. But let's go on to perceived busyness. Let's talk about that. Right. So the second section in the book is about busyness and how one of the biggest challenges people came up uh, in my research thing was getting in the way of them making maintaining their friends was that they felt so busy, they were busy all the time, and they felt like their life was so full, and they just didn't have time to fit friendship into their life. And it's true, we do have busy lives, we do have a lot going on, we have so many more distractions than we ever have before with social media and entertainment and life and work and all of those things. Um, And especially if you're 
parenting or having like additional commitments outside of work, you know, I get it. We're busy. And we also have the ability to take control of our time and attention if we want to, and to find ways to fit a small amount of friendship into your life, whether that's every day or a few times a week. Uh, there's really no downside to finding, uh, to fitting friendship into your life. And so making the commitment to get creative with your calendar, and I have a lot of different exercises in the book people can do to find where you can fit a small pocket of uh, friendship into your life or restructure your relationship to time, actually, and think about how might you become more unbusy and how might your life improve as a result of that. Right. I, I love some of the quantifications that have gone on in the study of this. Jeffrey Hall at the University of Kansas, you point out, found it takes 90 to 200 hours to take a stranger or acquaintance to a close friend. Uh, so that's that's a pretty big time investment. And most people do perceive themselves as busy. And a lot of people, as Chris Murphy was saying earlier in this show, are busy. We have jobs that tether us with Slack and other devices uh, to our jobs, even when we're arguably not on the clock. So, so yeah, I mean, but I guess you're saying the longest journey starts with a single step and maybe a small step is a good beginning? Exactly. All right. So let's talk also about another thing that comes up in your book is our relationship to our family. There's a way in which we do give, or many people do give a primacy to their families. Right. So getting, and first, I want to clarify here that not everybody chooses to like become parents, but their primary relationship with their romantic partner may become their primary sense of family, or it might be their siblings or family of origin. But typically what this looks like, uh, particularly in a lot of the interviews I had, was that once people started having babies and raising kids, like it is true, like that is going to be a massive commitment of time. And then it became really difficult for people to figure out, well, then how do they blend friendship into their life when they have so much going on in parent town, right? Um, what do they do if they want to make friends with another parent from their kid's school, but their kids don't like each other, but they really want to hang out with that parent, you know, <laughs> or what do they do if uh, their kids do want to be besties, but they're like, oh, now I have to hang out with this parent all the time and I don't really get along with them. I don't like them. And so there's all of these like complications and nuances that come when you're trying to blend a larger group of people together. It's not just picking who you want to spend time with as an individual, but maybe it also needs to be like, that kid and their parent and their parent, you know, parent's partner. And like now suddenly like two or four or six people have to all decide that they want to spend time together. And so it's real. There's like some significant challenges there. And for each of the challenges they talk about in the book, I also have a whole host of experiments and ways that you can try to get around those because I want to make sure that we're enabling people to try things and actually solve these problems so you don't feel stuck. Yeah, I mean, in my own life, I, I'm a, more of a solitary kind of person just by, by temperament. I think uh, my partner is somebody who's from a fairly big family, but also has said, you make your family. You make the families uh, that are going to be your family. Exactly. And she's incorporated. Yeah, and, and, you know, Robert Frost at home is where they have to take you in. And so if if you your family includes, as it does in the case of my partner, I don't know, four or five other completely unrelated by blood uh, nuclear families that have been kind of merged into this giant collective, you know, there's sort of a way in which, yeah, well, I don't like that one person so much, you know, or uh, my kid likes that kid, but I don't like one of her, her two parents. It just, that starts to bleed away, I think, if you if you start talking about these new relationships the way that you think about family. Yeah, it can get, it can get a little bit more complex, for sure. Um, and then um, there's maybe a question of whether or not we have the skill sets. Uh, I mean, one of your other, the other things you explore is the whole idea of 
difficulty establishing intimacy. We're not, I don't think, all born with the same set of skills, and then we don't all acquire other skills. What, can, what more can you say to help people understand that phenomenon? Sure. So, yeah, in this section about getting better at getting closer, what I'm really looking at here are the things that inhibit us from developing that sense of closeness and ways that we can practice the skills if they don't come naturally to feeling closer, right? So one of the things that we know, um, one word you're going to hear a thousand times when you ask people about, you know, trying to establish friendships, they're going to be like, oh, I'm afraid it's going to be awkward. Or what if it's awkward? Or what if I don't know what to say? And so there's this a little bit of anxiety that comes with wanting things to feel natural and smooth, but not really knowing that they have the conversational skills or not really knowing um, how to keep it interesting. And so I have a ton of tools that I've created, like Better Conversations Calendar and like Better Than Small Talk. And there's like ways that we can practice curiosity, for example, as a skill that helps you alleviate feelings of awkwardness and also feel closer to the other person. So those are two examples of things that you can do to practice getting closer while also feeling more comfortable in your own skin while you do it, too. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that research does indicate that sort of fighting against one's own awkwardness and one's fear of awkward situations and long pauses and all this kind of stuff is the worst possible thing that you can do. That almost le- I actually do with some regularity in social situations, although I haven't been in very many since the pandemic, uh, mm-hmm. I'll say I have no social skills. Uh, and that calms everybody down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and But there, I think there's a way in which that's kind of true, right? The worst thing you can do, it's like swimming, you know, swimming against an undertow. You're, you're going to drown if you fight something that's already happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a really great book on this uh, called Choke by Sian Bailoff. Um, she was interviewed in the New York Times saying why why trying to be less awkward never works is because when you focus on what you're doing, you're like, are my arms in an awkward way? Am I saying the right thing? Did I laugh too loud? Did my feet look weird? Like the more you focus on like this hypersensitivity to every detail about yourself, you are actually proven to come across more awkwardly because you're like hyper intensely focused on every little detail and it and it does make you choke. And so instead, if you turn your attention towards the other person, focus on them, notice their point of view, their perspective, the expression on their face, what they're really saying. Did they say something interesting? You might want to ask a follow-up question to. It is like not possible for your brain to focus on yourself and the other person at the same time. So really just put your attention on them and it will calm you down and take you out of that uh, sense of nervousness that comes from focusing too much on if you're being awkward. Because then you're also judging yourself, right? How, how does it make you feel comfortable to have your inner critic kind of monitoring you at all times? Like that's not going to be the best for feeling comfortable and natural when connecting with people. All right. That sounds like good advice. There's more to come. If you're interested, Kat Velos, our guest, is a speaker and connection coach. She's also the author of We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow with a brand new show about humanism. What does it mean to be a human being? Getting particularly important in this era of AI. How are you different from data? I mean, I mean the guy on Star Trek. We'll be back tomorrow. So